Hello from the Clio Cloud Conference online everywhere you might be. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Brian Parker. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here virtually. And so we're continuing our coverage here at the Clio Cloud Conference. And uh, we connected with uh, Brian Parker. He's the CEO at Legal Innovators. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me, Lawrence. Uh, pleasure to be talking to you. And uh, we were delighted to be uh, with Clio earlier this afternoon. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, we got a little time to catch up in our pregame. Sounded like it, a lot of activity, a lot of uh, Q&A and a pretty active group. Yeah, well, I'll just uh, tip my hat to uh, all the folks over there at Clio. They do a uh, first-class job in terms of uh, getting you ready, all the support. Uh, and and yes, uh, it was a spirited conversation, and we were happy uh, to be part of it. Well, let's transition to that. So you were uh, presenting at a session titled Equity in Practice, Driving Structural Legal Innovation with Data and Diversity. And so before we get into that, and thank you for sending your uh, presentation. There was a lot there. And I definitely want to you know, bite off the, the critical elements there. I did notice this, uh, this great quote that you put in there. And I, I'm a sucker for boat quotes. And so I really, I really liked it. But uh, you shared a great quote by the late Congressman Elijah Cummings. And so I was wondering if you could share with the audience what that quote is and why it means so much to you. Yeah, so I, I got the good fortune of uh, being able to attend uh, congressional, a few congressional Black Caucus uh, conferences. And this one year, the late congressman, as you mentioned, uh, was given the keynote address at lunch. And I kind of remember it like uh, yesterday because he was uh, talking to a group of us about dreaming big and being audacious in the things that you set out to do. And he says, there's no safety from Baltimore. So it stands to reason he's talking about the Harbor. Um, there's no safety in kind of being in the Harbor and, and playing it safe. He says, I want to go out where the big boats are. Um, I want to get far away from shore um, because that's how you realize your, your dreams. And when we're having this conversation about equity, what equity is saying is, uh, and, and people get these confused, equality is giving everybody the same thing. Equity is removing systemic barriers that get in the way and letting people get what they earn. That's what we're talking about in a meritocracy. So um, whoever is dreaming, black, white, uh, whatever sex, whatever uh, uh, you know, uh, orientation, that you can be as big as your dreams in this environment and we can remove some of those hurdles so that you can live it. And that's what it means uh, from, from, uh, from the congressman. Well, in your presentation, I like how you set uh, you set everything up, and I think it kind of relates to some of the the boat analogies there with navigation. And you said, you know, how do we know where we are going if we don't know where we are? And that's where you sort of opened up these discussions and shared a little bit of the his, uh, the history of organizations and you know, quite quite honestly, you know, failed attempts to increase diversity and inclusion within their ranks. And so, you know, just just to kind of give us a starting place, historically speaking, organizations probably meaning well, they they would go through. Uh, certain, you know, th certain exercises to try to promote diversity and inclusion, but they didn't work. So typically speaking, historically, what were those? Yeah, uh, boy, um, mouthful. So maybe I'll, I'll give an answer. And if, if I haven't given enough color, um, you know, please, please come back. I think you, we, we break this down, uh, and this is a little bit crude, right? But when we talk about 
why we're not where you know maybe we want to be as uh, as as an industry. Um, we boil it down and say uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, some people say uh, diversity, equity, inclusion has been a nice to have and not a must have. It's been a nice to have, not a strategic impairment, uh, uh, imperative, excuse me. When something is a strategic and imperative, well, you resource it, you measure it. It's failing, it's succeeding, you reward or you have consequences for those that are, that are, that are not doing that. And so I think when we look at it, it's looked a lot like corporate philanthropy. And don't get me wrong, it's, it's, it's good where corporations and law firms have shared their treasure uh, with some in the industry. And, and so certainly that's lifted up some organizations, some individuals. But if there's no permanence to it, if there's no multiplier effect that we can say, hey, for this money that you put in, for this investment that you made, well, we started with 5% uh, Black uh, associates and we ended up with seven, or we invested this much and it became uh, the, those investments in diversity translated to this much profit for the firm. So that's a little bit of the difference. And in, in, uh, we start at the top, we define it as a business objective. And when you treat it as a business objective, just like increasing your operating profit, you know, de- decreasing sales and marketing as a percent of revenue, whatever your goals are that you want, set it, be relentless about measuring it and reporting it out. So I, I simply, I think it's, it was a nice to have versus uh, an imperative for the business. That, that's a nice jumping off point for my follow-up. And so, uh, you know, at Legal Talk Network this year, uh, we've had this opportunity, you know, with the COVID shutdowns, our travel schedules reduced. And, and uh, you know, right before the pandemic started, we added a couple of new team members and, uh, you know, with those resources, we've been able to fix a lot of our old problems. And one of them was uh, we're doing a scaling up, uh, you know, exercise where we're focusing on goals and objectives and, you know, kind of getting into, you know, what you're talking about there. You know, one of the the things about the scaling up principles is that it gets us into this different paradigm of thinking about making changes. And so we have to measure what matters and we have to have strategic real goals to get there. And so in terms of that paradigm of thinking, I think you laid it out so well in your, uh, in your presentation, you know, where does that paradigm shift come from? Like, I guess it's more of a who question. Who does that come from in, in organizations? Boy, uh, really, really great question. And you might uh, probably not be surprised by the answer. It comes from the top, right? Because when, when the top of the organization, um, meaning the CEO, uh, the boards, uh, the other C-level officers say that this is an imperative for the business, then it becomes an imperative for the business. People know that this is going to be important. This is going to be measured. And as it relates to the individual, this is where a system of rewards and consequences are going to be tied to some behavior. As you think about that, and then as employees, uh, teammates fill out the organization, they're able to come in and say, well, wait a minute, diversity is really taken seriously here. It's measured. People are transparent about the results. When you are, people start to say, wait a minute, there's some fairness here, right? Because remember, I talked about equity and equality. Equity is just the same chance. All right, well, maybe this isn't like a black box kind of thing. And then, you know, sort of the, the top of the totem pole now in, in diversity and inclusion speak has become a sense of belonging. And I don't say that, um, you know, with any, any derision. It's if you can achieve an environment where a person feels like they belong, they can be their true authentic self, 
then you've said, okay, this person can flourish. They can show all their, their, their talents. They're benefiting others. But um, it, it's set by the top. It's measured. But it's super important because you're saying, I want to drive this goal. And so you're talking about diversity and inclusion. And so writ large, the people that it is impacting, I think the thing that's also got to change to tie into your first question is that you've got to listen to uh, the, the uh, to your employees as well or to your teammates. So it has to be a top-down uh, goal, um, but it needs to be a top-down and a bottoms-up. So you need to understand what the folks are saying and fold that into the strategic imperative. Well, getting back to where we are, I want to I share some statistics that, uh, that you presented and shared uh, with the Clio Cloud Conference. I think it gives us a nice context, uh, you know, to, to what, what needs to be measured, kind of gives us that bearing as to where we are, that sort of that sailing yeah. analogy. And so I want to sure. open with this one about investors. So I thought this is a really interesting uh, statistic that you shared. And so uh, in terms of investors, if investors invested in entrepreneurs of color to the same rate that they would with, uh, you know, the white counterparts, you yes. know, what would that do in terms of creating new jobs and new worker income? Yeah, so we see it creating uh, 9 million more jobs and 300 billion in worker income. And so- That's a big say, scale. I mean, that's a, that's a it's lot. It's a big scale, right? But we're, say, we're making the case for diversity. And the companion point to that is, well, there's a moral case, right? Like it's always been the right thing to do. Well, you know, the right thing to do. Um, here's a business case. You can um, impact the system, um, diverse organizations, uh, similar industry and size uh, are more uh, have more revenue, law firms more 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 profit. But when you think about financing entrepreneurs like our company, substantially minority owned, led by uh, a black CEO, uh, although we're we're diverse, my partner is is white. We take this work seriously um, and. We, our associates are, are both diverse and non-diverse, but when you, just using us as an example, when you put that money to work and you say, oh, well, you've got new jobs, well, what do you do? I mean, it's a, it's, you know, kind of econ 101, right? It's a multiplier effect. Those folks live in the community. They start buying houses. They're shopping at the local grocery stores. They're paying for services. The whole ecosystem starts to benefit. And then state, um, DC doesn't have, uh, you know, I guess a, it's a city and a, and a district, but you understand local, state, federal taxes, right? So the whole system becomes better off when we, when we think about that. All right. So I want to translate that into where we are with big law. And I think that that's probably the most, um, I guess maybe the most orthodox traditional structure to the practice of law that exists in the legal profession. And so wanted to, and, and thank you for humoring me in our, in our pregame. And so what I wanted to do was uh, contrast a little daylight between uh, certain uh, different demographic breakdowns of groups and their representation in big law. But I wanted to kind of first share, you know, their, their percentage in terms of the overall U.S. population and then contrast that with their representation in big law to kind of show where that daylight might be. Sure. So is that, uh, why, don't, why don't we start, uh, if, that, if it's okay with you, Brian, why don't we start with minority associates? So just in terms of what I researched, um, according according to Wikipedia, so please take with a little bit of a grain of salt, uh, right. Wikipedia uh, said between about 33 and 40% of the United States is made up by the, the aggregation of all the minority groups. And so how does that stack up when you start talking about minority associates in a big law firm? 
Yeah, and and you know, look, we can do the whole statistical uh, drill down, but I think when we look at the current election that's going on, um, I think it's clear uh, uh, that we are a majority minority country, and so if we say that, then it's fifty plus one. But your numbers work too. Um, 24% um, overall uh, of minority associates. So we're saying about double or, or they're about half of, of what they would represent in the, in the population. So um, there's uh, on the slide that you're talking about, because I want to be clear that um, it's important to measure so we know where we are and that we know where we're going. But it's it's also OK. Right. Like if you're at a low point, don't let that keep you from starting. Right. So right. we've made some progress as uh, as an industry. But to get to where we all want to go, it's going to have to be systemic. But to your point, um, the number is 24 versus 50 plus one. Okay. And then uh, this next one, I know there's some nuance in it. And, and uh, I know there's there's some historical uh, barriers and sure. a generational barrier that breaks into it. But uh, women equity partners. And so, you know, this is fascinating mm. to me because uh, as, I, as I understand it from some of the stats I've seen, you know, women are about half of the law school population. They're a little right. more than half of the U.S. population. There's more women than men in the U.S. population. But uh, in terms of their equity partner representation, what is that? Yeah, so that's about 19%. Uh, and so we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's inclusion, uh, including everybody. And so um, if you think about what all the things that you just said, 50%, uh, roughly 50% um, uh, come in uh, of, of each associate class are women, that's the question that we're asking. Um, it's not just equity partners, but that's the stat that you focused on. Who has the leadership positions? Who's on the executive committee? Who's leading groups? Uh, who are the equity partners? But the equity partner percentage is is nineteen. So I think we've made again progress. There's some daylight to use your words, and there's also a pay gap, um, which I think for the same work is um, that that's just not something that we can, uh, in an equity sense, um, that I think we can stand by. Uh, women are making about ten to twenty percent less uh, than their male counterparts, and and uh, we've got to address that. Well, let's get into some of that uh, systemic, uh, the systemic obstacles that uh, play sure. a part there. And so, let's say uh, we've got a, a well-meaning uh, a law firm out there, and they're getting the message. You know, uh, a lot of these big law firms uh, they, they represent these large companies, and these large companies want to do business with uh, with law firms that represent their values. And so, a lot of these organizations are putting forth. Um, I guess hiring hiring requirements where they say, "Listen, we want you know diverse law firms uh, that that are handling some of our work, some of our bet the business work." And so that's what they're looking for when they're reaching out to a law firm. So let's say a law firm out there, well-meaning, wants to get to those numbers, wants diversity inclusion amongst their ranks. And so, you know, I do understand that there's going to be some challenges and obstacles along the way of getting there. But uh, what are some of those common obstacles that an organization trying to get to that point? What, what are they going to encounter along the way? Yeah, really good question. And, and I'll just give you, um, you know, a couple of buckets, right? Because we can, of course, list out a lot of things. But at a super high level, I think we've got to think about old mindsets, right? We've always done the, this way. What is the innovative way to think about, right? If we're thinking outside the box, what does that free us up to do? If we look at best demonstrated practices, what will that open up? Um, and to your question, which I really appreciate, if we are gonna talk at systems, let's look at the systematic things that are constraining us, uh, whether they be education, economics, social unrest, uh, all of these things uh, present, can present and have presented a barrier to, uh, to making our, our um, 
our industry, our profession, more diverse and, uh, and, and inclusive. And so um, if you look at those things and you say, hmm, um, how can we think outside the box a little bit? And, and what do I mean by that? Well, go to the old mindset. People are, you know, and this is a little bit of the unconscious bias work that we need to do. And this is not saying, oh boy, somebody does this and they're racist. No, not, not at all. They are, you're comfortable with what? Other people that look like you, that do things that you do, come from the schools you come from. So if we're limiting ourselves to uh, the same top 20 schools and the same percentage from, uh, from those schools, and if there's uh, only 19% women, just that was a demographic that, that you have, and so then there are more men that are interviewing as you, as you come in, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I think at the individual level, we can do some of the unconscious bias or, or implicit bias training. Otherwise, we can start to move some of those barriers and say, well, let's look uh, more broadly. Uh, let's add analytics and predictive tools to what we're saying. Um, Clio, for instance, and I'll just, you know, um, one of their diversity managers wrote a post in Medium. She said, look, um, we were at, at actually at zero women in this particular function that they were measuring. It's just, well, even for a diversity of opinion in the daylight that you were talking about, that we've got to we've got to close that up. So they were really purposeful about making sure that they that they added to that demographic. And so I think it's representing your organization, starting from the top, um, having the institutional courage to say, here's that gap and, and close it, and then be more broad in your thinking. So if we have a more innovative approach, we increase um, the places that we may look for people, and that we really define, we want lawyers that are successful. So we can have analytics come in, and then we look across the board and say, if what we're committed to is having this diverse environment, we're going to set targets and we're going to measure over a period of years, we should be able to see progress towards that. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that, you know, kind of a non-race-related uh, kind of thinking mm -hmm. outside the box for, um, you know, for recruiting. I know of a firm here in San Diego that, uh, you know, was looking for uh, basically people that could eat what they kill. And so right. <laughs> they, they were looking for uh, they were looking for finders, not necessarily grinders. And so, you know, typically speaking amongst their ranks, you know, were, uh, you know, tier one law schools, you know, people that were on law review, you know, that, that sort of top tier, you know, law student that everybody uh, that everybody gravitates towards, but they switched their thinking a little bit. They wanted to look for some very successful solos. And the reason they wanted that is these are people that know how to generate their own business. So they were looking for these factors to kind of help drive their bottom line. So that's interesting. You know, you sort of change where that's you're right. looking, you get a different result. Well, that's, that's right. And, and if that's what's important, because what you're telling me then is entrepreneurial characteristics kind of rise to the top. And I can tell you because we use analytic tools in, in how we've innovated and how we find talent. And law review can be important, but law review, just as that one data point by itself, is not predictive of who is going to be a good lawyer. If I take that entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial characteristic and I put it into my model and I say what I'm looking for is what you just said, not only do I change where I'm looking for, but I change what's important in terms of the background that I'm evaluating. And if I'm looking at these predictive tools, then it can raise up more people that are entrepreneurial, more people that are women, more people that are what, you know, you, you pick your characteristic, you can complement 
the eye test because we've got a, in big law, uh, competence is the first, <laughs> second, maybe third test, right? And so we've got to solve for that. But we can look broadly and we can look at tools that say, well, there, there's probably a broader set of people that can be successful here um, than we have uh, thought historically. All right. So uh, we're just about out of time, Brian, but I, I wanted to close it out with this. We've already kind of ventured into this territory, but I uh, wanted to close it out with some solutions. So you're, uh, you know, you're one of the partners at, uh, you know, a big law firm. You're looking at your diversity inclusion numbers and you really want to improve upon it. And uh, you know, we talked a little bit about looking in different places, but uh, just in terms of some advice, you know, closing things out, what other, uh, what other pointers would you have for a big law firm management to start improving those numbers? Yeah, and and what what I would say is um, we we have a, a, a framework for this a diversity framework. It's about five points. Um, I'll say those quickly. People can come to our website and uh, interact with us and, and be able to get that. Um, I would also say uh, we didn't get into this, but in this moment, that uh, because of George Floyd and some of the other social things that are going on, people are paying a lot of attention right now, and the boil is up to like eight or nine. I would urge people to turn the boil down to four, right? Still hot, let it simmer, but then stay committed to this work long-term because if it's just a flash and then we turn our attention back away, we won't make the strides. But for us, you've heard me talk about data. So use data through evidence-based systems, uh, client leadership. So corporations will be able to drive this because they influence uh, uh, law firms uh, in the way that their customers uh, influence them. So, supply chain um, diversity. So the, you, we go back to the stat that you, that you talked about, the $300 billion. Corporations can use their uh, supply chain dollars with uh, women, minority-owned law firms. Venture people can invest. Uh, law firms can also look for diversity this way. Change management. We especially know that on the law firm side, um, this change is going to be new and a little bit uncomfortable. So if we can think about how we introduce the, the change and make it comfortable for the organization, uh, and then, uh, sorry to leave a little bit of a commercial, but like we've <laughs> tried to do at Legal Innovators, look at alternative models, and, and you get into that a little bit, uh, Lawrence, look at alternative models uh, for creating pipeline diversity, and not just at the junior level, but at the senior level. I think if, if you can kind of think about things that way, you're, 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 off, uh, you're off to the races, but you know, we'd be happy to engage uh, uh, with anybody that wants to get a little deeper on these. All right, and where, where can they reach out to you, Brian? Yeah, thank you for the plug. Uh, so you can, you can reach us uh, through, through our website at info at, or I'm sorry, through email, info at legal-innovators. Of course, uh, the, the website is www.legal-innovators uh, and Twitter, if you'd like to follow me there. Uh, it's R. Brian Parker, and you can look for us in, the, in our podcast in our column, Law in Black and White. So we really appreciate your time, Lawrence. I know you have a lot of people to cover. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice.
As always, consult a lawyer.